How's everybody doing today? You know you're getting old when you blow out your knee throwing your kids in the pool, so I'm going to hobble around up here. Um, so I was out shopping uh, the other day uh, at Home Depot, and uh, I decided I, I saw something I wanted, and I was like, it's Father's Day, so uh, I've had no conversation about this item with my wife. Um, it's $15. Um, I'm going to buy myself a Father's Day present. Well, a friend of mine had, had shown me uh, this thing for grilling, and I didn't know about it, and I thought it was awesome. And so um, I, uh, I saw it at Home Depot, and I was like, I'm buying it. I'm buying it. So I uh, get in the car, take a picture of it. I send a text to this person, and I'm like, Happy Father's Day to me. I'm, dri- I'm, I'm driving. <laughs> driving home, and he texts me back, and he's like, hold up, um, I might have told your wife about this item, but you might want to hold off. <laughs> Come to find out, he had texted a picture of this very same item <laughs> to Danielle, and uh, told her that this would be a great Father's Day gift. Come to find out, we had both purchased the same exact thing. So I blew it, and Father's Day, I felt so bad, and she's didn't think it was a huge deal, but um, I was actually get, I was getting in the car. The kids are some of the kids are sick, so they're home. She's home, but I was getting in the car, and she's like, "Hold up, just a second. She opens up the back and pulls out of the back. She's like, "I'm gonna take this back to Target." <laughs> um, so anyway, Happy Father's Day. Uh, don't do that. Uh, anyway, so uh, we're in this series called One Church, and this morning uh, I just want to kind of zoom in on a particular verse. And then ask a few questions about kind of what's being taught in that verse. And so, um, as we've as we've envisioned this series and launched this series, kind of the vision behind the series is: what does it look like for us to be and just try to be together this summer and grow in unity and grow in grace towards one another? Um, and really ask the Lord, what does it look like for us to function as one? And so that's kind of what we're exploring and what we opened up with last week and what we're going to continue this week. And so um, it's based out of Romans 15. Um, Romans 15 verse 5 says this, and this is where I want to just kind of try to unpack a little bit as we'll look at a couple different passages this morning. Uh, it says, Romans, Romans 15 5 says, May the God of endurance and encouragement. I'm not going to say much about that at all. But that'd be an unbelievable phrase for you to just meditate on this week. May the God of endurance and encouragement. Um, This is the phrase that we're going to hone in on. Grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. And so here's the question that I want to answer today. How, How does Jesus unite his people and empower them to live together as one church? How does Jesus unite his people and empower them to live together as one church. Um, if you're familiar with uh, the Old Testament at all, um, you might be familiar with this pretty, pretty famous passage in Deuteronomy um, that simply says this, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Have you heard that verse? Anybody heard that verse before? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One. Um, the first thing I, I really want to hone in on today is, as we think about, okay, how, how does God empower us to live as one, um, is first to understand that God is one. Um, Jesus, when uh, he, was, he was approached with a question 
um, by a religious person in the New Testament about what, what is this whole faith thing? How, what does it boil down to? What is the point of it? How, how, how do I live this out? And Jesus basically boiled it down to two things. Remember this? Love the Lord your God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. But before he said that, he stated Deuteronomy 6, 4, when he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he went on to say, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what he was stating, what's known as the Shema. In Jewish faith, that's, that's what it's called. It's this prayer. Um, literally, that word here is, is the word Shema. And Shema was actually, in the Jewish culture and Jewish faith, they would recite this prayer, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They'd recite that. It was such a fundamental tenet to faith. It is such a fundamental tenet to Christian faith and to what it means to, um, to be a church, to be one church, to function together as one church. And here's a, here's a couple reasons why. Um, this idea that God is one is so fundamental to what we believe as a church and what we believe as Christians for, for two reasons. I'll give you two reasons. And then we're going to unpack this really, really practically for what this means for us. So the first one is this. Um, it teaches us th- this idea of God being one really stresses the idea of God's uniqueness and his exclusivity. Um, think about that for a second. Unique. Um, what are some things you could think about that are unique? <laughs> Maybe there's people in your mind that you're like, <laughs> they're unique. Okay, God, there's, there's nothing like God. There's no one like God. Like, he is of another kind. He is, I mean, that's why we gather and why we sing songs and why we come here and we celebrate and why we seek to live our lives in worship because God is so unique and so worthy. He's unlike any other, worthy of worship. But, but secondly, this idea of exclusivity really carries this, this connotation that he's the only God. Right? I mean, we believe that as Christians, right? And it's not like there's different gods you can choose from, and we'll pick this one because this is the best way, uh, and we'll, we'll deny this one. But he is the only God. Literally, um, this is the phrase that I found as I was studying. Um, exclusive means unable to exist or be true if something else exists or is true. So the fact that God is the only God means that there is no other God. It's what we, it's what we call monotheism. Monotheism. Um, so it stresses his uniqueness and his exclusivity, but it also stresses his unity and his wholeness. Let me unpack this, and then we'll try to get fairly practical with these concepts. Unity. Okay? Monotheism. One God. But we believe, biblically, and as a church, um, one God manifested in three persons, right? We call that the Trinity. Okay? Not three gods. One God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Okay, but whole, right? Okay, I'm a dad who lacks a lot. Okay, who makes mistakes. Okay, who has, there's, there's aspects to who, like, let's just talk about the dads for a second. There's aspects to who you, some of you are as dads, where you're just unbelievably gifted in a certain way with your kids that I'm not. Okay, um, or there's ways that I'm gifted that you're not. Okay, and we could, we could talk about that even as like individuals in the body of Christ and ways that you're wired, other people aren't wired. Okay, God isn't lacking. 
Okay, I might be lacking in an element of creativity. Um, I might be lacking in, in, in whatever way, right? But God is, God, is whole, God is whole. He's perfect. He is not lacking. He is 100% complete. Um, that's why we worship him. That's why we know him. Now, even as we think about Father's Day, um, think about this idea of as a dad, there's times where I'm, I'm not a perfect dad. There's times where I make mistakes as a dad. There's areas where I want to grow as a dad. I'm constantly praying and asking my wife and even asking my kids, how can I be a better father? How can I grow as a father? How can I love you better? Okay, and there's times like, we're all like this, there's times where, you know, as a dad, your kids might see two or three different versions of you, right? Where you act and respond one way or another way, or in some ways it's great, in some ways it's not great, and, and just trying to navigate life, that's sometimes how we are and who we are. That's not who God is. Even as we think about God as Father, this idea that God is one, He's whole, He's perfect, we don't wake up wondering, like, what's God going to be like today? Is He going to be mad at me today? He was mad at me yesterday, or he was happy with me yesterday. Like, is he going to be mad at me today? Like, that's not who God is. God doesn't have multiple personalities where he reacts a certain way based on this or that. Like, God is perfect and whole and unique, and he's one. He's completely one. Um, I want to look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 really begins, continues to unpack this idea of what is God's uniqueness, yet God's unity. How does that impact us as a church? Um, Ephesians chapter 2, um, I want to actually, I'm going to put it up on the screen in the New Living Translation because I think it really, I just like how it, how it exposes the text. Um, here's what it says, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. So here's the idea. I want to put it in a phrase. What Jesus does when he unites us as one church is he takes very different people and enables them to find one common identity in relationship with Jesus. So he takes people that are very different. So the the illustration in the text was, was who? Jews and Gentiles. Right? So you have Jews who were considered the chosen people of God, born into the name of God. Right? And then you have Gentiles who were considered pagans of another kind, literally outcasts, can, you know, the unwanted ones. Um, it's interesting, as, as I was thinking about this, even my own family depicts this in many ways. Right? I have two kids who have my blood, were born into my family, born with my name. Because it'd be like Jews. I have two kids that weren't born in my family, right? Didn't share my name. We adopted. They now share my name. They were in many ways outcasts, unwanted. They now share my name. They have equal rights, equal inheritance, and here's what's interesting. As we think about this passage, look at what it says. That for Christ himself has brought us peace, 
He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. So he took the, his own people, he took the unwanted ones, and he, he makes them into one family. It says they both share in the same inheritance, in the same identity, through what he accomplished on the cross. They're one. Um, after we adopted Danny and Amelia... Um, they sent us new birth certificates for them. And this absolutely blew Danielle and I away. When we got the birth certificates, we looked at them. And the kids' names, their new names are on there. And then underneath it, if you're familiar with the birth certificate at all, it has uh, mom and dad on the birth certificate. But it has the date. It has how old I was when Danny was born. It has how old Danielle was when Danny was born. And the same with Amelia. As if they were born. Like if you look at their birth certificate. If I hand you their birth certificate. And you knew nothing about their story. You would have no way of looking at that. And being like they were adopted. It looks as if they were born to us. It's, cr- I, I just, it's just crazy. And as we look at this passage. And we think about what does it take for God to take the Jews and the Gentiles, and say, you're welcome. You're all welcome in my family as he adopted. He adopts us. We're Gentiles into the family and says, you, you share my inheritance. You share my name. As chosen people of God, the passage continues in verse 15. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. So one new people, we call that the church. The Bible calls that the church. God's people saved into Christ to be one church. Now, um, we're going to talk a little bit about this idea of hostility in a second, but it's interesting because the hostility that's present, like just using my, my family as, a, as an illustration to depict this contrast between Jews and Gentiles, yet both sharing the inheritance in Christ, th- there's still hostility that exists between my biological kids and my adopted kids, where biological, my biological kids, Tobin and McHill oftentimes will think they have more rights to us, or, you know, because they're, and there's attachment stuff that's going on there. And then there's Danny and Amelia where we're working on that attachment and trying to figure that out. And there's, there's hostility. And it's, it's changed as, as we've had them longer and longer. But there's still hostility and warring. And there's a bond that Tobin and McHale have. There's a bond that Danny and Amelia have that across lines they don't. But, but they're growing in. And they're coming, and we're working really hard to, to, to grow in and see each other. We're one family. And Danielle and I have to fight all the time this, this, this struggle to view Dan and Amelia differently than we view Tobin and Mikhail. It's that nat- I mean, for those of you that have kids, you, it's that natural draw, like, this is my kid. It's different when you, you know, if I hand you Amelia, you're, you're not drawn to, I mean, she's pretty, pretty awesome, but you're not drawn to her like you're drawn to your own child right? It's not your kid. But there's this hostility. There's a potential for this hostility. It's the same thing 
when the Bible talks about marriage, right? It says that the two shall leave your father and mother. The two shall become one flesh. You become one. And so there's, there's hostility and there's warring that you have to get past where it's like you begin to merge like one purpose and one vision and one like here's the values we will hold as a family and where relationship struggles when those, those two individuals want to continue to have their own. Like, well, these are my values. No, these are my values. Well, then you begin to have kids. You begin to add, you know, the dynamics of relationship and move forward. And all of a sudden it's like, well, this isn't working. Because there's not unity and oneness in how we view life and how we view where we're headed and how we view the Lord and the role he plays in our marriage and in our life. But Jesus says that what it means to be one church is that we begin to take on a new identity where we lay down the, the personal agendas and we begin to take up the agenda of who the Lord is. Um, John 17, one of, one of my favorite passages on this topic, it uses God as our model for what it means to be one. John 17, 22, it says, The glory that has been given to me, I have given to them. So Jesus is praying to his Father, and, and he says, he describes this, one, this unity as glory. He says, the glory that's been given to me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Like, what a prayer. Where God, where Jesus is praying for you and I that we would be so united, that we would be so moving forward to this idea that we're a family, that we're working together, that we're, we're trying to live out the reality of our faith together. He says, I pray that it would be the same as the unity God the Father has and God the Son has, and God the Holy Spirit has. That we, may, that, that we may be one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? So the world may know that you sent me and love me. He describes it as glory. What's the glory that God the Father gave to God the Son? He gives him his love. He sets his love on him, and he invites him in to the mission of redemption, where he sends him to the earth, and he gives Jesus a part to play on this earth to, to call and ransom you and me. So this idea of glory, this, like the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, really is depicted by the fact that God set his love on us. And like picture, picture a puzzle, right? Where every single one of us is like a, pu- a puzzle piece. Okay? Those puzzle pieces are wor- like essentially worthless just in the box. Or if you take a piece, piece from this corner, a piece from this corner, and you try to put them together, you can't see it. But, but, but the picture here that we're seeing in Scripture is that what it looks like that we're given a, a part to play in the game that is the Christian life is that we then begin to come together as individual with gifts and talents, this curved corner and this blah, 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 like puzzle piece or whatever, you follow me? And we begin to come together to depict and display the image that is the glory of God as a church in the same way that a violinist in an orchestra plays that part to bring together the grand presentation. And without that part, that orchestra is missing something. 
Hear that. Without you, this church isn't the same. This church is different. This church is lacking. That's what it means to be one church. That the church is ransomed and rescued into Jesus Christ. And that that as one church, we now depict who God is to one another and to the world. So, okay, let's get incredibly practical. How do we live out this identity? That's what I just want to, I want to cover just three quick things. How do we live out our identity as one church? Um, from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, we see the, the word together. Be together. It's hard to be one if, you're, if, if we're not together, right? Um, what I've found is that the, one of the number one tools that the enemy uses in my life is isolation. Um, why is isolation so dangerous? Have you, have you ever faced that? Like when you're alone or you're isolated, it's like all hell breaks loose. Why is isolation so dangerous? Any thoughts? Nobody else encourage you. Nobody to encourage you, nobody to correct you. What was that? Lies. Yeah. Now I feel like the times when I'm isolated, they're the times when the enemy is just feeding me lies. Well, this is what this person thinks about you, or this is what this situation is, and it's like you begin to believe those. It was uh, it was this week. I was in the kitchen at my house, and um, Danielle could just tell that I had a frustrated day, and and uh, and and, and I was told we were talking about that, and she just looked at me and said, "Like, what's God done that's good?" And I just got mad at her. I'm like, of course you would ask that question. And then, like, <laughs> like ten minutes later, I came back and I was like, "Thanks for asking that," because it it totally changed me. Because I'm like, one, I felt rebuked in a really good way, but two, like, I came back like, that's what I needed. Because it's so easy to focus on the negative or the discouraging. And she's like, man, where are you celebrating? What's God done? What's he doing? It was really, really cool for the most part. Um, yeah, I, isolation is hard. Um, and there's, here's the lie is that, that we can foster the kind of relationship that God wants alone. Like that, you know, I can be in my Bible, and I can be in prayer, and that I can be the Christian God wants me to be, and not really be with people. The problem is, is that to be a Christian, what it means to be a Christian is to be together. The, like, the idea of church, ecclesia, means the called out ones, who are called out of former identity, called into a new identity, and that whole connotation is togetherness. That the... the the fundamental level of what it means to be a Christian is to be together. To be called into an oikos or a household, the household of, of God. Um, it's interesting how, think about the idea that how our surroundings so profoundly shape us. Um, so uh, at Subway in the past couple of weeks, so I, I get a whole bunch of like first time like, first job type of employees where they've never worked anywhere, um, which is 
challenging and awesome because we have, I have one girl that works for me that she's worked for us for over four years. We were her first job, and when she started, she was terrible, and she would tell you that. She was terrible, and now she's like one of my best employees. Um, but So I had two employees that um, are just trying to get the hang of stuff, trying to figure things out, and they had their, both of them within one week, both got sick, supposedly, um, and uh, not, not on the same day, but literally within two days, one got sick, tried to cover their shift, couldn't find anybody, but didn't tell anybody. Same with the other one. Got sick, couldn't cover a shift. So 30 minutes into their shift, I get a phone call. So-and-so's not here. So I call them. I'm like, where are you at? They're like, I'm puking my guts out. I'm like, okay, like, I'm sorry that you're puking your guts out, but it's 4.30. You're supposed to start at 4 o'clock. How come I, I, you didn't tell me? You didn't call me and be like, like when did you call me like an hour ago and be like, I can't, I can't find anybody to cover my shift. Okay, so we, we had these challenges, but what's interesting is like, with these same employees, I could, I could give them formula tests. I could give them, we have what's called Subway University. If you, if you want to go through the training, I could I give you a login. Um, it's, it's awesome. I mean, I'll give you a certificate and a shirt probably. Um, but I could give them all these tools and all this. I could show them a map of where prep tomatoes go in the walk-in cooler at my store at 94 and Kiska Road, where they go. But if they never get in the store and they're never surrounded and shaped by the environment that actually is the working out of all the information they're supposed to study and know and the formulas and all those things, then it's useless. It's meaningless. Unless they actually come together. Listen, that's, that's the story of this calling to be together. Because if the fundamental identity of a Christian is that, that we're called into the people of God, then all that we're doing here and all that we're talking about and all that the Word depicts, if it's not working itself out in community, then it's like an employee that just knows all the information but sits at home. Doesn't have to face the challenges of, well, I watched a video on a customer complaint, but I don't ever talk to customers, so it doesn't... What do I do with that? You see, you see what I'm saying? It's the working out of that. Okay? Um, here, here's the challenges of, of being together, right? Sometimes it's hard. Not, not just because, like, sometimes it's hard to be with certain people or whatever, but sometimes it's just inconvenient. It's like I'd much rather stay home. I'd much rather have my kids in my backyard where I can manage them and they know what to do and how to act than to take them out in public. And then they have to be this way or that way or, you know, we've got to do a head count. Or, like, it's, there, there are numerous challenges in the enemy all the time. And I'm sure you experience it. Feeds lies into our minds to compromise being together. Ah, just stay home. Or I'll just won't, won't go do that. Or, oh, I won't, I won't call this person. Or I won't respond to this person. Or whatever the situation is, think about that. What are the challenges that the enemy uses to get you to believe lies, to not be with the church? And I'm not just talking about here. I don't hear that. I'm not just saying, like, here. I'm sure this is important, but if all your involvement is just here, this is, what, an hour and a half on a Sunday? Right? It's, a big, it's a bigger, broader picture, right? We come together to celebrate as one church and then be sent together. Um, 
So there's several events that have been planned over the course of the summer. There's a schedule back there. Um, plan to be at some of those. Look at the calendar and plan to be. Try to, try to make space and schedule out some of those things where you can intentionally say, we're going to this. Sometimes things happen, things come up, they don't work out, whatever. But you say, man, I, I want to be committed. It's, it takes commitment, right? Second thing, how to live out this identity. Um, Jesus, the passage depicts fighting for peace together. Where it says that Jesus um, actually brought peace between Jews and Gentiles. So the passage is talking about this idea of fighting for peace together. Now, how many of you are going to some type of Father's Day gathering with family? Okay. How many of you are excited about that? Not excited about that. Okay. I mean, depends on the dynamics. Some people are like, I love being with my family. Some people are like, being with my family is really challenging. Um, there's this notion that f- the best way to fight for peace is to not go where there could be hostility, right? Like, so we shouldn't go this afternoon to family or, um, or whatever. But Ephesians 2.16, it's almost like this, this dream. Like, pick, picture the words of Ephesians 2.16 that say, our hostility toward each other was put to death. Think about that. What would it look like if as a people where we disagreed or where there was hostility that it would just be destroyed? Now, I don't know about you, but my, my tendency as a dad when my kids battle, when my kids fight, is separate them. You go over here, you go over here. Now, it's effective in some regard. Like, there's times they just need to cool off. They just need to be separated. They're at each other. Um, but for that to be, like, always what happens, like, I'm not teaching them how to figure things out together. I'm not teaching them how to reconcile where there's hostility, where there's controversy, if I'm always, like, separate. I have to teach them how to fight for peace together. Like, how do you talk this out, figure this out? No, the answer isn't found in just, well, just don't talk to your brother for the rest of your life. I'm sure you, you guys said that growing up, right? Like, I hate you. I'm never, never going to be your friend again. I'm like, you're in the same family. Never talking to you again. Buddy, I don't, I don't think you can do that. Good luck the rest of your life trying to figure that out. But it requires, this idea of even fighting for peace together requires being together. It requires having hard conversations. It requires the challenges of, of what it means to be family, to disagree. Man, that's one of the biggest blessings about the family I'm married into is they're just, my wife's family is just unbelievable about being together regardless of whether or not they agree. Like they'll get, have disagreements at dinner and at the end of the day, like they're hugging each other. And it's just unbelievable to see family function as family, even where they don't always agree with everything. Are always like the same things. It's profound. And I think there's a challenge here in this that we, we have to be careful not to always surround ourselves with people that we like and get along with real easily. Because fighting for peace, where homogeny exists, reconciliation is hardly necessary. You think about that. Where homogeny exists, where everything's the same, there's really not anything to reconcile. 
But the picture of God's people is that we're a reconciled people to God and to one another, continually, continually growing in what it means to be a reconciled people. How did God accomplish this with the Jews and the Gentiles? His death. He died. So that's the last thing. How do we live out this identity? It's being people that learn to die together. It's like, that's kind of morbid. Think about it. If you take like Luke 9.23, whoever would come after me must deny himself and take up his cross. It's a a call to die. The call to Christian life is a call to, to die. Think about it this way. What is it that causes hostility and war? Opposition. Warring agendas. Right? Like tonight I'm going to watch Game 7 of the NBA Finals. And there will be an unbelievable amount of hostility. Because there are warring agendas. Golden State has a very different agenda than the Cavaliers. Right? And when you have two opposing agendas that come together, what do you have? Hostility. And it's going to be awesome. Okay, but biblically speaking, apart from Game 7 of the NBA Finals, what it means to be people who, who fight together but even learn to die together is that we learn to die to... I learn to die to my agenda and what I want. Sean learns to die to his agenda and what he, he wants. And we then learn to take up the agenda of who God is, the faithfulness of God, the mission of God. We learn to take that up together. So the calling to die is actually where we begin to speak truth to one another. We begin to, you know, that whole don't isolate because no one can speak and can correct you. We learn to die together where we're, we learn to lay aside our agenda. I'm not always really good at laying aside my agenda. I need a wife to help me do that. Apparently, I need four little kids to help me do that. God's given me a church to help me do that. He's given me all kinds of different people in my life that help me realize it's not about me. It's not about what I want. There's a different agenda. What it means to be one people is that we lay aside our personal agendas. We find our place in the story of God and we begin to live out together the mission and the agenda of God. And we learn to serve the needs of others together. Um, this, this Saturday, and I would just encourage you, if you're available this Saturday, um, we're going to be painting a ginormous map at Russell Elementary for three hours. Um, there's a huge playground. You can bring your family. You can bring your kids. Um, serving the needs of, of others. Um, man, I would encourage you, if you can be there and be a part of this, part of what it looks like to die together and serve together as the people of God to be a witness to this school by taking up God's agenda together. I want to I wrap up with looking back at Romans fifteen five. Look at what it says. It's the phrase that I said I wouldn't say much about. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony. I don't want to pray and stop without pointing out this fact. Is that what we're talking about, what we're describing is a gift. Like, look at the words. 
May God, may God grant this to us. A God who's enduring. God doesn't quit. God doesn't give up. He's enduring. He's encouraging, which means God is a God of hope. May that, may that kind of God be the means by which we're granted by his grace. We don't deserve it. We deserve to be in a church that's hostile and no one loves each other and no one gets along. And, but by God's grace, may he continue to grant to us and grow us in what it means to be one people. To live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Uh, let's pray and then we'll prepare to respond to the Lord. Father, I thank you for your word. God, it's so encouraging. I thank you for, God, the gift of this family. God, being one church is hard. Doing life together is hard. Laying down my own agenda is hard. God, there's a way I want church and life to look that you're not on the same page. And so, God, I pray that you would grant this to us. That you as a God of endurance and encouragement would grant to us profound spirit-filled identity of being united together. And so, Lord, I just ask you to work in our hearts. I ask you to do what, what I can't do or nor am I called to do. God, I want my heart changed. I want to grow in grace. I want to grow in what it means to be together as a family. So God, thank you for saving us. Thank you for rescuing us. God, as we respond to you now, um, would, you, would you lead us? Uh, in Christ's name, amen.